Last week we started with a preview of why Jewish history is not only essential um, for one's understanding of himself, but really gives a person an in-depth, in-depth view of the Jewish past, the Jewish present, the Jewish future. I decided really to start this survey of Jewish history with the fall of the first, uh, uh, the first great revolt um, to against, the Rome, against Rome. Basically tonight my goal is to discuss the three great battles, the three Jewish wars against Rome, the great revolts, the battle of the war of Kitos and the Bar Kokhba revolt, the causes for these wars, and really these wars against Rome really set the tone for the whole diaspora, for the whole exile. You know, before the Roman Gaulus, it was a different world for the Jews. Everything that we are today, of course, all of our past, all of the stories of Tanakh makes us Yidin, makes us Jews. But when we look at where we are today, I think profoundly, we are set into motion at, with the destruction of the second base of Mikdash and the subsequent revolts against Rome. The Great Revolt. The Great Revolt which led to the Chorban Bayez Shani, the destruction of the Second Temple. You have to understand, the Rome would fall really four centuries after the Great Revolt to, to the Vandals and Oscots and other German barbarians. But at that point, Rome had been depleted in population. They had corrupted themselves on a, on, to the extent where the population was halved. They had changed in numerous ways. But when the Jewish nation revolted against Rome in 66 of the Common Era, it would be the modern day equivalent of the State of Israel starting a war against Russia, the United States, and all of NATO combined, without exaggeration. This was during the time of the Pax Romana, right after Augustus. Rome was at its height. It was at its strongest point in its history. It ruled over the greatest swaths of land it would rule over. Caesar had already destroyed Gaul, they were already having into Britain. The German barbarians were not a threat. Rome, at one point, will go all the way into Persia and Parthia. And no one could ever imagine starting up with Rome. It would literally be suicidal to even to embark on that. So how did the Jews, and why did the Jews, do such a radical um, thing such as attack Rome? So I, I, I broke it down. There were three major causes for the first revolt, and two of those causes would precipitate the subsequent two revolts in, in 116 of the Common Era and in 133 during the Bar Kokhba revolt. The first would be the ideological differences between the Jews and the Greco-Roman Empire. The second would be internal strife amongst the Jews. We'll discuss all of the fights that went amongst the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the early Christians, the Samaritans, the Zealots. There are lots of different groups during that time period. And number three was the spread of Roman and Greek anti-Semitism, Roman persecution, which would ultimately light the fuse box, which would start the revolt. 
Firstly, ideological differences. Like the Greeks, the Romans worshipped a plethora of gods. Every time they conquered a nation, they would not only um, conquer the nation, but they would adopt that nation's gods. So by the time of the first century BCE, Vero, the famous Roman historian, writes that the Romans worshipped 30,000 gods. Of course, paganism, idolatry, is um, perhaps the cardinal sin of Judaism. And this would create um, a distrust amongst the Jews and the Romans. The Romans, if you look at Roman historians, refer to the Jews, believe it or not, as atheists. We were called atheists because we only had one invisible God, which they couldn't see. If they're gods, you would go to the temple of Jupiter in Rome and you would have see big statues and there would be all kinds of visible idols and pagan worship. The Jewish God, they supposedly believe in one God, which you can't even see. The Jews refer to as atheists. But more importantly than Jewish theology was the lifestyle difference and the culture difference, cultural difference between Jews and Romans. Tonight's going to be, in the beginning, a little bit graphic, because to understand Rome, you have to understand the acute differences. Rome was sexually and sensually radically different than Jews. Jews are a chaste people. We get married to one wife. We made all kinds of laws of incest against homosexuality, against bestiality. Homosexuality was part and parcel of Roman life. And in fact, the, there was no such thing as a homosexual accepted that men had relations with men and men had relations with women. Pedophiles were not only accepted, but parents took their child to the neighbors to have their first experiences. Plato, Aristotle, these were all pedophiles. This was part of Roman culture. Plutarch, in his description of Greek and Roman weddings, says that the night a lady got married, she was raped, and then the groom would go off and spend the night with men. That was a wedding night in Rome. This was a different culture, to say the least. If you, I once saw Ken Spiro basically discusses the family values of Rome in his World Perfect. It's an excellent book, by the way, World Perfect. It, it, it's, it's an excellent book, uh, World Perfect. So he says as follows. What was Roman family values? Learn sex at an early age from the men next door with consent of parents. Marry as late as possible and then avoid your wife at all costs. Rear sons and discard daughters except for one. Send sons away from home to go to military camps or other things at a very young age and girls who get married at very young ages to husbands who didn't care about them. Violence. Rome was filled with violence from the top down. Just to give you a small example... Nero, who was alive at the time of the beginning of the Second Temple, how did he come to power? His mother, Agrippina, basically killed his father, Claudius, and killed every person along the way in order to make sure that Nero became the emperor of Rome. Rome's leaders 
were, for the most part, probably clinically ill. If you read any of the story of Rome's leaders, they were psychopathic. And Nero, of course, is famous for what? For blowing a fiddle. Just the, the leader who started the, the war with the Jews in 66 is for blowing a fiddle as Rome burned. They were egotistic and they were filled with violence. They encouraged gladiator fights. Life was cheap. Augustus, the famous Augustus, Octavian, bragged how in one day he had 10,000 gladiators fight amongst each other and kill 3,500 beasts as well. Every year, tens of thousands of people would die. And in the Roman Colosseum, gladiators would fight each other. Children would be put in as gladiators. Women would be put as gladiators. And they would be forced to fight each other as thousands of people watched. Children were put out for, uh, to, to die. It was part and parcel of Roman society. Listen to this quote, quote from Euripides. Children were thrown into rivers, flung into dung heaps, and cess trenches potted in jars to starve to death, and exposed in every hill and roadside as a prey for birds, food for wild beasts to rend. If you didn't want a child, there's a famous letter from a Roman, I forgot his name, I think Herod, to his wife, where he talks about if he has a daughter, let her leave her for exposure. If it's a son, if he has no mooms, if he has no imperfect, uh, 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 no maims, or any other blemishes, you can keep him. That was commonplace in Rome. And the Jews, life was the most precious thing in the world. Judaism says that even the Sabbath could be desecrated, not only for a healthy individual, for, but even somebody who's critically ill, somebody who's going to die in one minute. He's on his last bated breath. You can desecrate the Sabbath. Not only could you desecrate the Sabbath, it's a mitzvah that desecrates the Sabbath. Life is the most precious thing in the world. So you had a violent, pagan, immoral Rome, and you had the Jews. Their differences, this culture comp, this war of cultures, would put them at odds. Look at source number one. I apologize, I had it in Hebrew. Um, when, it, when, it, when now he printed it, he would not get it. For those who want it, I'll send it to Jake with the Hebrew. So, Kisari Yerushalayim, Im Yomelacha Adam, this is from the Talmud Megillah 6a. Kesaria and Jerusalem and Yushalayim. If someone will tell you both are destroyed, do not believe it. If someone will tell you both are standing, do not believe it. But if someone will tell you that Kesaria is destroyed and Yushalayim is standing, or if Yushalayim is destroyed and Kesaria is standing, then you could believe it. What's the Talmud telling us? The Talmud's not talking about the physical Jerusalem and Kisari. Actually, the time the Talmud was written, both Jerusalem and Kisari had been destroyed. <laughs> what the Talmud is saying is that you had two world countries, two world views. Kisari, Caesarea was the hotbed of the Greco-Roman influence in Israel. It was the emblem of Rome's power and Rome's culture in Israel that this battle between Jerusalem and Rome, it can't go together. It's like water and oil. If Jewish values are being propagated, inherently it means that Roman values are not. And if Roman values are being propagated, if Kisaria is, is, is being built, then Jerusalem is being destroyed. 
that amongst the Jewish people you're not going to have both Rome and Kisarioth. The second reason, the second cause for the Great Revolt, as mentioned, was inter- internal Jewish strife. Now you have to understand that the period right before the Second Temple was perhaps the most cantankerous period amongst Jews in their history. There were several groups who were at each other's throats. Number one, there were the Hellenized and assimilated Jews. These were the friends of Rome. These were Jews who were Jews by birth only. They had no religious practices. They were completely assimilated with no trappings of observance and they were allied with Rome. They were on Rome's side. They were not on the Jewish side. They cheered for Rome. And we'll see how far that went soon enough. The next group were the Sadducees. The Tzedukim were reformers. They were heretics as far as we're concerned. They only believed in the written Torah. They did not believe in the oral Torah. One of my Rosh Hashivas of Yerichan's like from Florida once pointed out that when we say that the Sadducees only believed in the written Torah, not the oral, he contends, and he has proofs to this, that they believed in the oral Torah to the extent it didn't disagree with the written Torah. So if the Pashat shot, if the plain meaning of the text said one thing, that's what they followed, even if the oral Torah said differently. The Karaites, who we'll learn about in about seven weeks from now, they completely rejected the oral Torah. They're, with them, there's no question. The Sadducees, for the most part, were also assimilated. Saul of Tarsus, Paul of Tarsus, who we'll get to, was a Sadducee by birth. Josephus was a Sadducee by birth. They, came, they dominated the, the upper classes of Jews, the Sadducees. The Kohanim, the high priests, in the end of the Second Temple period, mostly were Tzadukim. Mostly were Sadducees. Next comes the Prussian, the Pharisees, who were approximately 70% of the Jewish nation at the time of the Chorban. The Pharisees were those who were obedient to Torah, followed Torah law, followed the rabbis, followed the great sages. The great sages at the time of the Second Temple included some of the greatest sages that ever lived in this world, Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, Rabbi Lazar ben Herkines, Rabbi Yeshua, a young Rabbi Akiva was alive. I mean, you have to imagine the people alive at the time were very, very great. The Pharisees were the moderates. They were the majority of the nation. Parenthetically, if you look at modern-day history books, which are tainted by the Christian viewpoint, they will usually look at Pharisees in a negative light. That's because, and we'll get to when we discuss Christianity, the Pharisees were the greatest threats to the Christians. And, in the early Christian Gospels, and early Christian writers, would speak negatively of the Pharisees who rejected the Jew from Nazareth. I remember once, I often interviewed, just two weeks ago, I was interviewed by a Christian group in college, and so I was once with a bunch of high school students. And they're talking about the Pharisees. And I said, by the way, I'm a Pharisee. Their mouths dropped. They're like, you're a Pharisee? I said, guess what? Every Jew you meet today, we're all come from the Pharisees. <laughs> so if you ever hear anything bad about the Purushan, the Pharisees, that's us. We are the Pharisees. We all, anyone in this room, is a descendant of the Purushan. Now, Pharisee comes from Purushan. Purushan means 
those who abstain. There were, there were people who were at higher levels. Right? Perushan, they were, those who were stayed, abstained. The old Jerusalem community, the Yishev Hayashan, Yushalayim were called Perushan. Because of Pharisees. Number four were the Zealots, the Kanayim. The Zealots were comprised of several groups, including the Sikari, which were called the Daggers, which literally means daggers, because they would take out their daggers uh, and stab you in the back. The Zealots wanted war, war with Rome with no possibility of compromise. They were very religious, but did not follow rabbinic leadership. They, they were very religious Jews. Don't get your... <laughs> amongst the Zealots, they would look at them, they would look at very pious Jews. But they did not believe in rabbinic authority. They did what they wanted. And basically, there was no concept of compromise with Rome. Amongst the Zealots were also the Beryonim, which were ex-fugitives, who murdered, even in the beginning, not only non-Jews, but Jews alike. Then there were the ascetic splinter sects, the Essenes. These were Jews, amongst them, the Dead Sea sect, which were small in number, basically left the world, moved to the caves of the Dead Sea to wait for the Messiah to come. They had very abnormal practices as far as men and women, they were not a major player in the Jewish scene, but they did exist in this, with a messianic fervor that was going on. When everything looked gloomy for the Jews, they were part of it. There were also the Samaritans. The Samaritans, of course, came in the end of the time of the destruction of the first temple. The Assyrians brought them in. They would quasi-convert. They were converted because they were scared of the lions. And their conversion would be a matter of debate all the way up to the time of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, the editor of the Mishnah, who conclusively said they are Gentile. The Samaritans and the Jews did not get along. The Jews ostracized them as fakes and charlatans. And, and vice versa, if you look at Samaritan doc- doctrines, they're a very small sect today. There are approximately 700 of them in the world. At one point, there were 150 left. Um, most of the Samaritans, they actually are Jews who just, instead of becoming hippies, they became Samaritans. Um, yes, the Samaritans are the Kutim, and the Samaritans are not good. The good Samaritan, again, you have to remember, the, after the destruction of the first temple, there will be no more Sadducees, and there will be no more Zealots, there will be no more Samaritans for the most part as a threat, there will be only the early Christians and the Jews. And that will create for the, the, the heart of Israel a battle. So the early Christians, anyone who was an enemy of the Pharisees, they liked. Because <laughs> they were the competition. After the first time, all these groups disappear. They leave history and all that you have left in Israel are Purushim, are the Pharisees and the early Christians. And of course the last group is the early Christians. Now the early Christians at the time of the first temple, right before that was the Council of Jerusalem, and at the Council of Jerusalem, James and Paul, they disagree exactly how far to go, but they would change the law of conversion. And Gentiles, they created a second tract to become an early Christian, and Gentiles could easily convert in. Now, the early Christians at that point, until the year 50 of the Common Era, had only one difference between them and the Jews. They believed in some fake Jew as being the Messiah. Otherwise, they followed Jewish practice. They kept Shabbos, they kept kosher, they kept all of the holidays. 
They'd walk in the street, they were not noticeably different, but this would cause the first complete rupture that would pull them out of the Jewish nation. So much so that by the end of the Bar Kokhba revolt, they would be assumed to be Gentile. But at the time of the first temple, and second temple, at this point, right before the, the great revolt, in the fifth of the common era, is the Council of Jerusalem. Therefore, the early Christians would be part of this dynamic of everyone not getting along. Jewish sources list there were 24 different factions at this time. And the net result was, and I mean this Lahavdil, is that the Jews were like the Palestinians today. There was no way to compromise with Rome. Because just like the Palestinians, who are you going to discuss? You can talk with Hamas, you can talk with PLO, you can talk with this group. There's no one really leading them, and everyone's disagreeing. It was impossible at a certain point for the Jews to ever have compromise with Rome because you had zealots. You had other people who, had, or, who wanted just to fight Rome. Some people compromised to Rome meant becoming Romans. And the moderates with the Purushim wanted autonomy for themselves. So no one was able to work out a deal with Rome and that would further lead to this great revolt. The number three reason was the spreading of organized anti-Semitism. and ultimately Roman persecution. So according to Philo and Josephus and Christian Gospel and the Midrash and Talmud, the time of Pontius Pilate, things went really awry. Pontius Pilate was the first Roman governor who really tried to force the Jews into pagan practices. At one point he tries to put up uh, statues of, of, of gods in the temple, the Jews revolt, he backs down, which Josephus brings down was one of the causes of the revolt because they looked at it, they were successful then. He was constantly berating the Jews. Pilate, all, Pilate quote Josephus, repeatedly almost caused insurrections among the Jews due to his insensitivity to Jewish customs, while Pilate's predecessors had respected Jewish customs by removing all images and effigies on their standards when entering Jerusalem, Pilate allowed his soldiers to bring them into the city at night. Okay. Incredibly, Christians claim, and again, we're not going to get to the, the Jewish-Christian battles, that, that Pilate allowed Jesus to be killed at the behest of the Jews. That is the greatest joke in history. I mean, of course, and it would change in later times, they won't blame the Jews, but for years, they blamed the Jews that they, they convinced Pilate, Pontius Pilate, to, tell, to allow Jesus to be killed. Right? That was, again, they wanted to set up the Pharisees for all of their ills. When Pilate's removed in 36 of the Common Era, other Roman leaders come in. But in that time, there was a famous Greek philosopher living in Alexandria. Now, Alexandria is basically like Brooklyn. Was it basically like Brooklyn? No, it didn't look like Brooklyn. It was a lot prettier. Had trees, water. You could walk the street at night. It was one of the most um, powerful, rich cities of the ancient world. Alexandria was about a third Jewish. (laughs) And it was a third Greek and a third others. In Alexandria's Greek population, as mentioned, the Greeks were radically different than the Jews. They were immoral. They were violent they were sexually different. They, 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 viewed, they were pagans. They viewed the Jews with suspicion. They looked like Hasidim to them. They were different. They were monotheists. They had one wife. 
They kept the Sabbath. They were lazy. Comes a Greek philosopher named Apion with book with a book slandering the Jews that the would, would probably make Julius Streicher, who is the head of Nazi propaganda, look tame. He accused the Jews of drinking pagan blood. Accused the Jews of killing. Accused the Jews of hating the Greeks. Plotting against the Greeks. These themes would, for the first time, be put out into the ancient world, and that would be these will reverberate through the protocols of the Elder Design, through Mein Kampf. For the first time, he comes to the world is in the time of Apion, when you had this culture conflict, this war of cultures between Jews and Romans in the Greek Greek Romans, Greek Roman society. Apion's work spreads throughout the ancient Roman world, and it would cause hatred. At the same time, you had Cicero and the Roman Senate blaming the Jews and looking at the Jews. Who are these people amongst their empire? Nine percent of the Roman Empire was Jewish. Okay, nine percent of the population was Jewish, and Rome started to get uncomfortable with them. Interestingly, Josephus, who we'll discuss shortly, wrote a, a book called Against Apion, which very powerfully destroys Apion's thesis and arguments, and was a real refutation of the book. Okay, that was written by Josephus. Caligula comes next. He's, he, he actually tries to put an idol of himself in the temple. Philo, who is a, a assimilated Jew living in Alexandria, and others go to Rome to ask for it to put, be put down. And Caligula dies at that time, and it stopped. But what really would push this persecution of the Jews was two events. That is that the Jewish leader, Agrippa I, who was a grandson of Herod, was generally pro the rabbis, generally accommodated. People liked him. He was he himself learned in Rome. He knew the Roman Empire uh, emperors, and he was on good in good terms with them. At the same time, Agrippa I, also known as Agrippa the Great, had a good relation with the Jews, and things were relatively calm. When Agrippa I dies. His young son Agrippa II, who was thoroughly Romanized, becomes the head of the Jews. He quickly becomes despised by the masses of the Jews who are Pharisees. He would align himself with Rome. Now, just to realize how perverted Agrippa II was, Tacitus brings down, Tacitus was a Jew hater, he was a contemporary of Trajan, he lived in the end of the first uh, century of the Common Era, Tacitus says that Agrippa's sister, during the siege of Jerusalem, lived with Titus, <laughs> who was the one destroying Jerusalem, ultimately went back and became the first queen of Titus, Bernice was her name, and so the Romans didn't like it that a quasi-Jewish girl had lived, was living with Titus, and they forced her out of Rome. Agrippa sent his soldiers to help destroy Jerusalem when it came to the fight. Agrippa would, print, would, would, would mint coins de- celebrating the destruction of Jerusalem. This individual became the leader of the Jewish people. If it wasn't bad enough, the Romans were dumb enough to put the governors of Israel, of Judea, 
from Asia Minor, Greeks, who were not from that country, and who had no understanding of the Jews, and who disliked the Jews. So they put foreign governors over the Jews who persecuted, taxed, and abused the Jewish population. This led to the Great Revolt. Florus, who was the last of the Roman emperors, Roman governors of, of uh, Judea before the Great Revolt, basically went to Jerusalem, started up with the Jews, and then put his soldiers on them, killing 3,600 Jews in a day. And the Jews started the revolt. They started the revolt. Now, at the, when the revolt starts, most Jews didn't want it. The Zealots wanted it. The Zealots had had enough. They were nationalists. They were religious. Again, you have to understand who these people were. They were fervently religious, but they didn't listen to the sages. They had no interest in listening to what the sages had to say. The Zealots demanded war. The Sadducees didn't want war. The Friends of Rome certainly didn't want war. They were aligned with Rome, assimilated Hellenized Jews. And the Pharisees wanted reconciliation. They were very uncomfortable with Rome for obvious reasons. They wanted Rome out of Israel, but they did not think that war was the option. Ultimately, the Pharisees would be involved in the war because they had no choice. <laughs> it was When the gun was put to the neck, either you fought back or you were dead. What happened, though? They may have had a chance. But Hashkacha Pratis, Divine Providence, had it that Florus and the governor, including the governor of Damascus, sent the 12th legion and other contingents from around to, to, to quell down Jerusalem and stop this small revolt. The Jews surprised attacked them and knocked out the whole 12th legion, killed 6,000 Romans in one day. And where did this battle happen? In Beit Choron. Anyone know what Beit Choron is? Beit Choron was where the greatest Maccabee that victory happened. When that happened, they looked at this as divine providence. Look at us. We just wiped out a whole Roman legion. I mean, they had just completely annihilated they did the impossible. They just knocked out the 12th legion. And where did it happen? Happened in the same spot where the Maccabees were successful. Obviously, God is on our side. This would have this battle of Beit Choron would have two effects. Number one, it was the Rome went berserk. Remember, this is Pax Romana. Rome is the most powerful country in the world. This makes 9-11 look small. This is basically the equivalent of nuclear taking a nuclear bomb and bombing San Diego and destroying San Diego. I mean, what do you think what's going to happen to the whole United States when that happens? They're going to be enraged. Not only that, these, they, this rage of Rome would spread to Alexandria, to, to Damascus, to other parts of Asia Minor, and there would be pogroms in all of these areas against the Jews. But the Jewish zealots would now be empowered because they had beat Rome. They did the impossible. If we did it once, we could do it again. Immediately they minted coins, and immediately the battle went into the point of no return. There was, at that point, at some level, the, the Jews still could reconcile with Rome. But they really would have been like Germany after World War I. <laughs> they were going to be at a high cost, and they knew it. And they didn't want to take the point of reconciliation. Now the sages, at this point, were still pushing reconciliation, but not successfully. So what happens? The Rome 
as Sam became enraged, they sent their top general all the time, Vespasian, who was, it's Nero again, is, is, is the Roman emperor at the time. They sent Vespasian to go ahead and quell the Holy Land. The Jews now were united in their, except for their allies of Rome, in Agrippa, who's the king, and others. They were united in fighting Rome. They immediately attacked the galley to shut down the route to Jerusalem. And also the Rome should have nowhere to dock their boats when they're coming from Rome. They conquered the whole Galilee. The chief general of the Galilee is a very famous na- person, historically famous. His name is Yosef ben Matisyahu. Yosef ben Matisyahu, a.k.a. Josephus, from the Ben-Gurion fan- clan of Kohanim. He would be the leader of the Galilee, now, which was a tragic error. He came from a high-up Sadducee family. He was a young, inexperienced, although talented individual. He should not have been the head. The other head was Yochanan Ish Chalav, John of Giskila, who we'll get to later on, who was a radical war veteran who himself was fighting against Josephus and would fight to the death. Josephus, his first possible moment, right, when the Romans get to Jadifat, surrenders to Rome, he himself escapes as half of the city committed suicide because there were zealots. And he goes to Vespasian and tells him, I'll be your ally. I think this whole war is a mistake. I, I will help you out. I'll be your emissary to the Jews. Vespasian sees this young, talented leader of the Jewish forces of the Galilee and says, this is great. And he takes him under his wing. Ultimately, Josephus becomes an honorary citizen of Rome writes two besides against Apion which was, a, which was a polemic against Apion to defend the Jews writes two of the most famous books of history the wars of the Jews and the antiquities of the Jews the wars of the Jews would discuss the great revolt the antiquities of the Jews would go from Moshe all the way up to the Chorban his works are classics now of course Josephus if you know who he is he was on the Roman payroll he ultimately will blame the, Ro- the, the Roman revolt on the zealots and on certain Romans themselves. But he, so you have to take him with a grain of salt. But he was a first-hand witness. Most other sources from Rome, whether Diocasis or Tacitus, they were not there. Josephus was there. He saw it with his eyes. You're taking a first-hand report of it. And Josephus also, it's a bad name because the, the Christians also didn't like him because he kind of ignored all of Christianity. So, again, Josephus will be looked at as a Benedict Arnold and a lot of that will come from the Christians themselves who really wanted to, to mitigate his influence at the time because he would have been a contemporary of the Jew from Nazareth. As Harvey Belsky likes to say, our cousin Jesus, Right? He, he would have been a contemporary and he should have mentioned him and he really doesn't there's one or two passages which are a matter of debate perhaps we'll get to in a couple of weeks the war of the galley would go on for a year or two and ultimately would end by, by Gushkalov Gushkalov was a city near um, near Meron and that's where the Sikari these radical zealots were they went all out against Rome. They poured burning oil on Rome and Rome became furious. They took citizens, they crucified them all outside the city. I mean, this was, you know, 
pitch battles. This were not, there were no laws of warfare over there. The Sicarii literally did everything they could to inflame Rome. They ultimately lost. Um, it's worth mentioning one of the other great cities that fell to Rome. And the Galilee is today famous for its wine, but then was a great fort called Gamla. Gamla was what we call the Masada of the North. If you go to Israel today, and you go up to the Golan Heights, where Gamla is, it's worth it to see Gamla. Gamla was never rebuilt after it fell to Rome. It is still there. <laughs> they excavated Gamla. You can pretty much see the whole city, you know, except for the parts that were destroyed by Rome. 4,000 soldiers would ultimately die in Gamla. It was a very, very long, harsh battle. The Romans lost many troops. And the rest of the Jews committed suicide. But it's still there to this day. And it's really, it's, if you go up to, to, to Israel, if you've never seen Gamla, it's certainly something to see because you can really see an ancient city. Now, having conquered the Galilee, the Rome decided to go for the hearts of the Jewish people. They didn't want to go start conquering all the Jewish cities of the south. They went straight to Jerusalem because they figured if they would knock out Jerusalem, the revolt would be over. That was where the heart of Jerusalem was, that was the major population center, and that's where many of the Jewish soldiers had um, surrendered to. Now, Yochanan, John of Giskala, Yochanan Gushchalav, escaped from Gushchalav at the end, this Sikari leader, and ran to Jerusalem, and he would lead the zealots of Jerusalem. Yerushalayim, at the time of the Great Revolt, had tripled its population. The walls were much more, like the old city today, the walls were extended. It actually went to what's called modern day Yerdavid Silouan, which were the Arabs of the walls, and all the way out there. In fact, Suleiman the Magnificent, the 16th century Ottoman Turkish emperor, he killed the guy who built the wall of Jerusalem because he didn't follow the ancient path. They made a mistake. So the old city today is not the old, old city. The walls, it was actually much larger. And at the time where the Romans had come to, to fight Jerusalem, there were 450,000 Jews in the city. Okay, this was a massive city of massive proportions. And the city was well stocked and well fortified. And truth be told, it could have held out against Rome. It could have beat back Rome. They had everything going for them. Everything going for them except themselves. <laughs> the Jews would get... Could you, you have to imagine this. They're surrounded by Rome. There's four legions. Vespasian was given four Roman legions, 80,000 Roman troops to attack Jerusalem. He put, his son Titus had the 10th legion, which was the most famous, which symbol was the boar. They were outside the gates of Jerusalem. There were 80,000 Roman troops outside the gates, outside the walls of Jerusalem. And they didn't have to do that much because the Jews started fighting amongst themselves. The Jews literally went to war amongst themselves. Because what happened is, you had a lot of weird alliances. You had the moderates, the Perushim, controlling most of the city in an alliance with the Sadduqim. The Sadducees, if you read the Talmud, you'll always see the Perus and the Sadducees at odds. But at the time of this battle, they became allies. They, they, they became allies. The Pharisees and the Sadducees became allies. And the Zealots, 
these people who refused to compromise, they were on the Temple Mount. So the moderates went after the zealots on the Temple Mount, led by Yochanan Ishchal, led by John Giskel. And with the next thing that happens, unbelievable, Yochanan Ishchal asks the Idumeans, the Idumeans, to come into the city and they go through the back. The Idumeans, where the Roman quasi converts from Herod came from, to join with him to backstab the moderates. Okay, and they went out war together. The moderates then take off Yochanan Ishchalov's main adversary amongst the Sikari, Simon Giora, who was in general a fanatic zealot who had nothing to do with the moderates. But since Yochanan Ishchalov was winning with the zealots, he decided to join this force. They start fighting amongst each other. In the fighting, they burned down all of the supplies to Jerusalem. The zealots burnt down all of the 21 years of supplies that Jerusalem had. Now, Jerusalem would end up in starvation. They were not only forced to fight Rome, but this civil war would cause Jerusalem to go to starvation. Look at source number two. Source number two is from Josephus, the words of the Jews. So soldiers out of wrath and hatred, they bore, they bore the Jews, nailed those they caught, one after one way, another after another, to the crosses by the way of jest. When the multitude was so great that the room for, was wanting for the crosses, and crosses wanting for the bodies. Josephus points out that the Jews were forced to escape the city, to escape starvation, and every day, 500 Jews were crucified as they left Jerusalem, and they were crucified in all kinds of weird, weird directions. Crucifixion was not just a one-time event. It was common Roman practice. Okay? And they were crucified. Jews all around Jerusalem, Jews were crucified. The starvation, the civil war, would go on amongst the Jews until the city, we're not going to discuss the actual fall, because that's for Tisha above, until the city would fall on the ninth of all 70 of the common era. With that falls Jerusalem. Now, the battle against um, Israel would continue for three more years. The Romans would then go to Masada. Just briefly about Masada. Masada was originally built by Herod. People don't know this. Herod built Masada. It was a, it was a Herodian palace and fort. Right? Originally built by Herod for re- recreation and to watch the eastern border of I- Israel. Shimon, uh, Eliezer ben Yar escaped from Jerusalem. Eliezer ben Yar was one of the leaders of the Zealots and Sikari, goes to Masada and leads a force of a thousand people during the, um, during the Roman revolt. Rome at first will not deal with Masada. They're focusing on Jerusalem. But when Jerusalem falls, they destroy two other Herodian forts and they come to Masada. Eliezer ben Yar was a radical Zealot. He was not going to surrender to the Romans. And they fought again. They killed Romans. They were throwing oil. They were throwing rocks. And the Romans were really struggling to figure out how they're going to conquer Masada. Ultimately, what they did is they took 30,000 Jewish slaves and forced them to build a ramp by Masada, which put these zealots at a loss because the only way they could stop the building of the ramp was by killing their fellow Jews these 30,000 fellow Jews who were building the ramp up to Masada, um, they decided not to. The Romans were about to destroy Masada and they all committed suicide. 
save five people. This, the only real recording of this is by Josephus. Okay? Josephus recalls the fall of Masadi. He in fact has a long last speech which he said he heard from one of the ladies, the five ladies who lived through Masada of Allah ben Yar's last speech as we can, as in, in detail he has a speech and Josephus you know, talks about how they all committed suicide when the Romans got there they were so flabbergasted they didn't even celebrate the fall of Masada because they didn't view it as a true victory now Masada today is now looked at as like uh, in a different way Masada for the record was never even though the sages of the Talmud heard of Masada it was never recorded in the Talmud no mention is made of it in fact the fact that they committed suicide is a discussion in halakha was it proper or not I'm not going to come out with discussion halakha was it proper or not but Masada became popular with the Israeli army <laughs> and that was and with the rebuilding of Jewish nationalism as a in fact the army almost every year many of the platoons get their medals or final things either at the Kosovo or Masada to show Jewish valor, valor. Right? Masada was at some level foolhardy they could have at that point given up and they fought to the death against Rome until really the state of Israel Masada was not a big if you look anywhere in Jewish history anywhere in Jewish literature it's not really a big event it wasn't viewed so favorably these were the same zealots who never listened to the rabbis in the first place who caused the war and their suicide was questionable um, for the record Josephus who goes through Masada at length one thing you have to say about Josephus for those who read it he was very accurate his descriptions of the land of Israel are very accurate archaeologically when they excavated Masada it was almost exactly the way Josephus described it when they were excavating Masada in the 60s they found a couple of very interesting pits and the Israeli archaeologists at the time apparently had no no they didn't know what to do they flew in two rabbis and they found these were mikvahs (laughs) Right, and there were exact specifications of mikvahs and masada. They found the Sholom masada. And in fact, they found that even a coin in the past few years, it said Ben Yair, for Elazar Ben Yair, who was the leader of the Sikari on masada. Josephus claims, and the, the Talmud really backs this up, that 1,100,000 Jews were killed in the time of the Great Revolt. 1,100,000 Jews are killed. 97,000 Jews go into captivity, Josephus claimed. And the Romans return to Rome amongst pomp and victory. And they had the famous parade in Rome. They took the two leaders of the zealot leaders, John of Giscola, Yochan Ishkalov, and Shimon Bar as captive. Shimon Bar was executed. Yochan Ishkalov was put in jail in a dungeon for the rest of his life in a few years uh, part of his death was executed and the Romans would celebrate now just parenthetically the, the, the 97,000 captives that came to Rome many of them ended up being freed by their fellow Jews many of them you know were escaped due to the help of the fellow Jews and all of a sudden Rome had a significant Jewish presence okay and we'll see shortly that they didn't like this after a while because all of a sudden Rome went being from a completely pagan city to having the atheist Jews as part of Rome. What was the Roman commemorations? They were ecstatic. This was the greatest fight against Rome since Carthage. 
Certainly, it was the greatest threat during the Pax Romana. The fact that they had to send in four legions showed how serious the threat was to Rome. So the first thing that the Romans did was they printed coins. They minted coins called Judea Capta. These coins would be minted for 25 years. Judea Capta, there's 48 versions of it showing the Roman dominance that they didn't mint coins for any other victory. There's no victory of England, England Capta, you know? You know, the Gaul Capta. Julius Caesar was ecstatic about destroying the Gauls. He didn't print these. This was a milestone victory. So throughout Vespasian's years, um, Titus's years, uh, Domitian's years, they always, they minted these coins. The coins were also minted in Caesarea, in Caesarea, which was the Greek city in Israel, because the Greeks were also happy that Jerusalem had fall, fell. And as I mentioned, Agrippa II, the last king of Judea who was Romanized, he himself minted coins. Judea is capital. Vespasian built the Temple of Peace, in 75 Kamenera. This was a beautiful temple in the heart of, the Ro- of Rome, which was in celebration of the Roman victory. In fact, historians say that the menorah, which we saw see by the Arch of Titus, that was kept for a while in Vespasian's Temple of Peace. Part of the Temple of Peace, uh, of Peace is still around in one of the churches called Santi Cosma Idemanio, one of the big Vatican churches, uses one of the walls of Vespasian's Temple of Peace. And the third famous um, commemoration is the Arch of Titus. Arch of Titus 82 of the Common Era under the Roman Emperor, Emperor Domitian, who is the son of Vespasian, the brother of Titus, he makes the Arch of Titus in celebration of the victory. He shows the, the menorah coming, and John of John of Giscala, and Shimon Bar Giora is taken captive. Famous story, and I told it to Andy recently, when the Panovich Rosh Hashiva of Kahneman, who was a great builder of Torah in Israel after the Holocaust, he built Panovich Yeshiva. He built Grunner Yeshiva. He built orphanages for the Jewish Holocaust survivors. He went to Rome in the 1960s. And he, the first place he asked was to go to the Arch of Titus. He went to Rome to collect for the Yeshiva. And he said, what are you coming to go to the Arch of Titus? Most Jews didn't walk by there. He said, I've come for a reason. And he took off his shoe the first thing and he hit the Arch of Titus. And he said, Titus, Titus! Titus, Titus! I am here! Me, Jew! Yosef Kahneman, where are you? These Jewish people who you tried to destroy, we're here today. And guess what? We're back in Israel. <laughs> and guess what? Hey, the Arch of Cetus. Now, interestingly, many people do not know this, there were two arches that were built. There was the Arch of Titus, which was in the Forum Romanium, which is the great forum, which where the Temple of Peace was built. And there was one built in the Jewish quarter where the Jewish quarter of Rome was also forced to have an arch. That arch was destroyed in the Middle Ages, but we actually have the text of that arch because an anonymous monk from Switzerland at one point printed it, and they have the text. And this is what the text of the arch says. Senate and people of Rome to their princeps, the Caesar, Titus Caesar, Vespasian, Augustus, son of the divine Vespasian, high priest in their tenth year, of his tribunal powers, 17 times leader, 8 times council, father of the fatherland, because he, on his father's orders and auspices, 
and using his advice, subdued the Jewish people and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Something thing which none of the kings and armies before him were able to do. So that was the other arch said. Nevertheless, very interestingly, look at source number three. Source number three is from Philostratus, who was one of the leading sophists of his day, of the, thir- of the late second century, early third century. Titus reportedly refused to accept a wreath of victory. Not only did they usually have a prayer, there was a wreath of victory. And he supposedly refused to accept it, as there is no merit in vanquishing people forsaken by their own God. Very interesting for Titus to have said that. And why would Titus, of all people, the Talmud says that on the way home from Titus's victory against the Jews, Titus was arrogant. You know, Titus slept with a prostitute in the Holy of Holies upon destroying the Temple. He laughed at the Jews. Why was he saying, Stalin, this is a, this is a Greek Roman philosopher saying this, that this is what Titus did. That he was pretty close to the time period. Why would Titus do this? So the Talmud says that Titus actually afflicted that a type of maggot worm thing went up to his brain and afflicted him the rest of his life. And God said it was a punishment to Titus on his way home for his arrogance in destroying the temple and his reaction to, towards it. And Titus for the rest of his life suffered from this thing which grew in his brain the sage said to, it became a large size, the size of almost a, a bird. Also, very bizarre, Titus, the two years where he becomes Roman emperor, is generally benevolent towards the Jews. So that would, that would be that he learned his lesson, you know, from his arrogance towards the Jews and towards God. Perhaps there's a couple of proofs towards it. What does the Talmud say? What's the Jewish viewpoint on the destruction of the Talmud, of the, of the, of the temple? The Talmud does not discuss, it does discuss some of the battles, but the main gist of the Talmud is what caused it on a spiritual level. Look at source number four. This is from contemporary American historian Will Durant. A great civilization is not conquered from without unless it is, has, until it has destroyed itself from within. The Talmud, and look at source number five, said that it was not the Romans who destroyed the temple. It was not the Romans who destroyed the Jewish people. It was the Jewish people themselves. I'll read it in English this time. This is from the Tractate Yuma, Seches Yuma, Mebez 9b. Why was the first temple destroyed? Because of three things that existed then. Idol worship, immorality, and the spilling of blood. Why was the second temple destroyed? Because of baseless hatred. This teaches, says the Talmud, that baseless hatred is as bad as the three sins of idol worship, immorality, and spilling of blood. Sin is chinam. The sages say that really it was a fighting amongst the Jews. Not only the fighting which we saw, not only the fighting which we saw at the end, the Tzedukim, the Zealot, the Purushim, the early Christians all trying to kill each other. But the, the, the example that the Talmud in Gideon 66 says is Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. The famous story of the hatred of the Jews became so strong one against another. We're not talking about ideological hatred even. That Kamsa and Barakamsa. They were both Pharisees. They were in the same camp. We're not talking about people who disagree because this person is not religious. This was just hatred. Right? So you have the story of Kamsa and Barakamsa 
symbolizing this destruction. In fact, the Chafetz Chaim himself says that the Beis Hamidrash was destroyed, the second temple was destroyed because of hatred of Jews. It will not be rebuilt until there is that hatred of Jews ends. Hope amongst the destruction. This is perhaps one of the greatest acts of divine providence. Really, if you were a historian looking in the 70 of the Common Era, you would think the Jews were going to go the way of Carthage. How many people met people from Carthage recently? <laughs> you know, any Carthaginians? Hey, Hannibal, you met anyone named Hannibal? Any, any young Hannibals walk around? Carthage, when it was destroyed, the rest of it was assimilated into the general culture and they would never rise again. You, you had to think the Jewish people were going to become a fossil of history. What happened that spiritually rebuilt the Jewish people? There were two leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees, of the rabbis, at the time of the, the Second Temple. There was Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, who was a Nasi, who was a descendant of Hillel. He was the biological descendant of Hillel and came from the Davidic line. He was the Nasi of the Jewish people and the, the head of the days did, the, the greatest sage was also, Rabbi Shimon Gamliel was a great sage, and also Yochanan and Zakkai. He was a teacher of the teacher of Akiva. He was the Gogol Hador. He was the Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, the Rabbi Vadi Yosef of his generation. He was the bona fide, unquestionable Torah sage leader of the generation. He himself was a student of Hillel. As it became evident that there was no more hope of making peace with the Romans, Yochanan and Zakkai says he has to get out of the city in order to make a deal with Vespasian, a personal deal. And he, the Talmud says that the fighting was so bad that they had to, to sneak Yochanan and Zakkai in a coffin to bury him outside the city, they pretended he was dead, to have him buried outside the city in order for him to escape the city. In fact, they tried to stab that coffin. He gets to Vespasian. Vespasian is waiting there, and he says, Who are you? I heard about you. What are you doing here? He said, I came to wish you greetings upon being called the new emperor of Rome. Now this, you don't see this anywhere. Rome, the year 69 of the Common Era, is the year of the four emperors. They literally had emperor after emperor come and fall. Nero dies, and they were very unstable. Vespasian was the long shot to be the emperor of Rome. The other people vying to be the emperor of Rome were in Rome. Or they were in France, in Gaul. They were close by. Vespasian was literally outside the gates of Jerusalem. If you were a betting man, he would not be the pick. Okay? And in fact, there were three other emperors before him that year. He comes and tells Vespasian, you're the next emperor of Rome. Congratulations. As he's standing there, the message comes from Rome that the third emperor has just fallen this year. There is no way he could have known that. Congratulations, Vespasian. You have been appointed emperor of Rome. Now, if you read Roman history, they appointed Vespasian because Rome had become chaotic. The city was going wild. They had three emperors fall in one year. People didn't know what to do with themselves. They figured Vespasian was the seasoned war hero. Let Vespasian rule Rome. So they pull in Vespasian from Jerusalem off the battlefield back to Rome to rule over the Roman Empire. 
Vespasian puts his son Titus, who is the, the head of the 10th legion, in charge, and the future leader of Rome, in charge of the, the, the battle against Jerusalem. But before Vespasian leaves, he tells the leader of the Pharisees, Yochanan and Zakkai, what would you like in return of your prophecy? Yochanan and Zakkai asks for three things. He asks to spare the Davidic line, spare the Nazis family of Shim Ben Gamliel. He asks him to help cure Rabbi Tzadok, who is a great pious tzaddik, where he was Jews who fasted for 40 years. Chazatot, he lived only on, fig, uh, on dates for 40 years prior to the destruction of the Second Temple in anticipation of the decree that it should be annulled. He looked around and saw how Jewish and Roman society was clashing on the inevitable destruction and he was fasting for 40 years. So he asked for Rabbi Tzadik to help cure Rabbi Tzadik, and he asked for Yavna and its sages. He asked for the Sanhedrin which had escaped to Yavna to be spared. According to one opinion, the Jerusalem Talmud, he, he hinted at the, you know, saving Jerusalem, and Vespasian was not going to go for it. According to the Babylonian Talmud, he never asked for that because he thought it was an unreal expectation. But either way, Vespasian looked at himself as, this is a foolish old Jew, saving an old rabbi, some Davidic line, and Yavna, a bunch of Yeshiva Bakram in, in, in Yavna, that's what he wants, it could ask me for something more. Could have asked me for a Roman Rolls Royce, a palace in a palace in Caesarea. He could have asked me for an army. He asked me for these three things. Ah, a joke. Ultimately, Yochanan and Zakkai would be the victor. That's why his descendant, the Panovich Rosh Yeshiva, would come to, to 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 Rome years later, because these three things were essential in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Way after, there's no real remnant of ancient Rome. Rabbi Tzaddik, of course, the Talmud is, has the idea that the tzaddikim protect the people. Rabbi Tzaddik was saved. The, the, it talks about how they fed Rabbi Tzaddik a very small diet of, of diluted water with some nutrients, and they built him up, built him up, built him up, built him up, until his stomach regained its original status and he was healthy again. Unfortunately, you know that after the Holocaust, many Jews died, because after being famished for years, they ate quickly and their stomachs exploded. So the Romans actually realized this and they fed him a very small diet and they built him and became healthy. So Tzaddik lived. So he had a great Tzaddik living. The Davidic line would live. Shimon Gamliel, the head, the, the, in fact, the next generation, Rabbi Gamliel, who was a son of Shimon Gamliel, would be the leader of the Jewish people. And of course, the Sanhedrin would live and Yochanan ben Zakkai, as we'll discuss next week, would rebuild the Jewish people spiritually. And so way after Rome falls, their plan to destroy the soul of the Jewish people would fall to Vespasian's gifts. What were the post-destruction relations with Rome? Now, it's actually remarkable that within a short period of time, the Jews were able to have some working relationship with Rome. Okay, they were able to deal with Rome at some level. They had the sages meeting constantly with Roman leaders. And there was a lot of contact with Rome. Forty years after the destruction of Rome, an, an emperor called Trajan comes, to the, to, comes um, uh, up. Trajan, at first, was kind to the Jews. And in fact, he discussed 
maybe I'll let you build it, the temple. But he said, on condition, it's not in Jerusalem, on that mount. He, now, the Jews are not going to build a temple anywhere else. And they disagreed. It, others say that Trajan um, fell under the influence of Tacitus, who was a famous Roman historian, as mentioned previously, rabid anti-Semites, hater of Jews, and he started to sway Trajan. But Trajan then distanced himself from the Jews. Concomitantly, Trajan attacked Parthia, Mesopotamia, and Babylonia because the Parthians had put a power leader in Armenia, which was traditional Roman territory. And he was successful, Trajan. But he didn't count on the fact that that was a heavily populated area with Jews, and the Jews would start attacking the Romans from behind. When the Jews started attacking the the Romans from behind, that became known throughout the Jewish world because the, the Babylonian Jews, the last thing they wanted were these Romans who destroyed their temple, taking them over as well. And they started to attack them out. And in fact, Trajan would have to retreat and the Roman Empire would never go back to that part of the world, to the Parthian Empire. Right, but this started the next great war, the Kitos War, which is not that well known. But the Kitos War spread throughout northern Africa, Throughout Cyprus and Asia Minor, Israel, Judea, for the most part, stayed out. They were still licking their wounds. They actually had suffered from the Great, Great Revolt. They pretty much stayed out of it, although there were some outbreaks in Jerusalem areas, but they stayed out. But look at source number four, number six, excuse me. This is from Orasius. Now remember, these, the Christian and Roman historians are going to be anti-Semitic. But look at how he says the damage that was done in Libya. Because the Jews completely conquered Libya, eastern Libya, and Cyprus at one point. The Jews waged war on the inhabitants throughout Libya in the most savage fashion. And to such extent, an extent, was the country wasted that its cultivators having been slain, its land would would have remained utterly depopulated had not the Emperor Hadrian, which is the emperor after Trajan, gathered settlers from other places and sent them thither for the inhabitants had wiped them out. Diocasis, the famous 2nd century Roman council, senator, an historian, who wrote in Greek, look at source number 7. Meanwhile, the Jews in the region of Cyrene had put one Adreus at the head and were destroying both the Romans and the Greeks. They would cook their flesh. Now, don't believe this. So, they would, they would cook their flesh and make belts for themselves of their entrails. Anoint themselves with their blood. Now, the Jews did not do this. This was how he described the Jews. And wear their skins for clothing. Many they sawed in two from the head downwards. Others they would give to wild beasts and force still to fight as gladiators. In all, consequently, 220,000 perished. In Egypt... Also, they performed many similar deeds. And in Cyprus, under the leadership of Timio, the Jews actually conquered the entire Cyprus. And they said that in the battles of Cyprus, 240,000 Romans and Cyprus were killed in Cyprus. This was a major war. Now, some of Diocastus' figures are probably inflated. He's writing this post-facto. There's no question there was damage throughout the ancient Roman war. Ultimately, Trajan would put it down. Alexandria would be wiped out. That Jewish Brooklyn, that Jewish Alexandria, would be completely annihilated during this war. And the battle would die. 
right the year after the end of this Kitas war, Trajan dies and Hadrian becomes the emperor of, of Rome. Hadrian also at first was somewhat friendly to the Jews, but the anti-Semites of Rome convinced him otherwise. And Hadrian decided to put the Jew boys in their place. That now longer is he going to have this fifth column of Jews, these atheists, moral Jews, who are going ahead and corrupting the, more, the Roman Empire with their Sabbath, because at this time, there are already Romans who are converting to Judaism and early Christian beliefs. No longer would he have Jews who would think that they're autonomous. So in the year 130 of the Common Area, Hadrian visits Judea, goes to Jerusalem, and builds a Roman temple to the, the god Jupiter, Zeus, on, on, in Jerusalem. This would enrage Jews. This would arrange it to a large extent, but they were not willing yet to fight. But look at source number nine, which is remarkable. I'm assuming it's source number nine in your paper, which is remarkable. This is from Epiphanius of Salamis, in the early fourth century. But look at the part that's bold, okay? Therefore, Hadrian made up his mind to rebuild the city, but not the temple. And he took, this is in the beginning, ultimately he built the temple. He took Aquila, mentioned above, who was a Greek interpreter. Now, Aquila was related to the emperor by marriage and was from Sinope in Pontus. Hadrian established him there in Jerusalem as overseer if the work of the work of the building, the city. And he gave the city that was being built his own name and the appellation of the royal title. For as he was named Ayalus Hadrian, he also called the city Ayala. Who is this Aquila? This Aquila, according to Epiphanius, ultimately converts, and this is actually the Talmud discusses, and becomes Onclus. <laughs> okay? Onclus, we know, the Talmud says in Gideon, was related to the Roman Emperor Hadrian. Okay, that is a fact. Onclus converts, and he's a translator, and Epiphanius says this was that same translator was the one who originally rebuilt Jerusalem to be a Roman city. Okay? Onclus, of course, would convert, and he would take a couple of Roman legions with him. For those who don't know the story, come to the synagogue on Tisha and we usually discuss it. This enraged Jews, but they weren't ready for revolt. Two years later, though, Hadrian forbade circumcision. He invade, forbade Brit Milah, and that was what pushed the Jews. Listen to the 4th century um, Historia Augusta. Of course, they say it in a Roman fashion. At this time, the Jews started a war because they were forbidden to mutilate their, gentle, uh, their male organ. Who is the leader of this war? How did this final great war, which would be the mother of all battles against the Romans, come? It was a leader called Bar Kochva. We don't know that much about Bar Kochva. There are a few snippets in the Talmud, a few snippets in Medrash, but that's it. He was, he is an enigma. Who is this Bar Kokhba who was charismatic, who the Talmud talks about having incredible strength and incredible leadership qualities, who inspired the Jewish people? He said at that point, when they forbade Britannia, the only way we are going to win back our freedoms is not by negotiating with Rome, not by talking to Rome, but by fighting them on their terms. And this time, as opposed to the first time, first two times, 
he had the complete support of the rabbis. <laughs> now that he had the support of the rabbis, Rabbi Akiva would claim, although other rabbis disagree with him, that he had the potential to be the Mashiach. That's why he was given the name Bar Kokhva, that a star will rise from Jacob. Rabbi Akiva believed that Bar Kokhva had the potential to be the Mashiach. He was a leader of almost 200,000. He had 200,000 people under his leadership, which was an enormous army, and they were wildly successful at first. They, they pushed Rome out of Jerusalem, out of the Galilee. They minted coins again. Judea is reconquered. They did not, he did not even build a temple. For whatever reason, nobody knows what happened. And Rome was petrified. Rome had tremendous losses. In fact, the 22nd Legion of Rome was wiped out, never to be put back into formation. There would no longer ever be a 22nd Legion of Rome. The Rome was forced, Hadrian said, his number one general, Julius Servius, who had been in Britain, right, Hadrian's Wall, that's where Hadrian's most famous. Well, Hadrian's Wall was built by Julius Servius, who put back the Celts all the way up to Northern Ireland. And that's why he built Hadrian's Wall. That general went down to, to, to take on Bar Kokhba. Somewhere between four and seven Roman legions went to Israel at the time, which is an enormous amount. In fact, it was the first time in the hundred years that Rome had to have a draft. Because <laughs> they ran out of soldiers to protect all fronts, because so many soldiers were in Israel fighting against the Jews. It was, at first, a disaster for Rome. The Jews were successful. Bar Kokhba was a great leader, but the star faded. The star of Bar Kokhba faded. And what happened? They started to have some losses. Why did the sages say they had losses? Because Bar Kokhba started to become arrogant. Okay? Bar Kokhba started to look at I'm successful, which God forbid, when you think about Hashem should bless the Israeli army with success, with mazel and bracha, but the worst thing we can do is to become arrogant of our own strength. That we, we don't need God. We can do what we want. That we could do it. Right? It's a scary thing. The, the Israeli army after the Six-Day War, they put out a pamphlet called Look What We Did. Look What We Did. And they didn't put that war, pamphlet out after the 73 war. Because unfortunately, in a second, they realized that you could lose it all. You could lose it all. And Bar Kokhba lost it all. Chazal tells because of his arrogance. Because he start, lost focus of who he was. And ultimately, that's what destroyed Betar. Betar was fortified that Rome couldn't get in. They couldn't figure out a way to get to Betar. It had all kinds of fortifications inside tunnels. There was 200,000 Jewish troops there. And insiders gave away the secrets how to get to Betar. Bar Kolchva thought it was his uncle, who was one of the greatest sages of Israel, Al-Razar Hamodai, who gave away the secret of how to get to Betar and had him killed. So he had the greatest Sadiq in Betar killed and with that Betar fell. That's what the sages tell us. That Bar Kokhba's arrogance his, his, and at that sense his insanity in this matter went so far that he killed Al-Razar Hamodai. At that point the sages no longer backed Bar Kokhba. They called him Bar Kolziva, the man of lies, the man of false hope, the false star, and Betar falls in blood. Look at source number 10. Of course, Betar will also fall on Tishabov, 
no surprise, like the first temple and Seneca temple, or fall on Tishabal 135 of the common era. This is from Diocasis. I'm going to just look at, we're going to read the, some, of, some of it in the beginning. At Jerusalem, Hadrian founded a city, uh, uh, the place of one of which had been raised in the ground, to the ground, named it Ayalia Capitolia, and on that site of the temple of the Jewish God, uh, of God, of course, he raised a new temple to Jupiter. This brought on a war of no slight importance, nor of brief duration. For the Jews deemed it intolerable that the four races should be settled in their city and four religious rites planted there. Skip to the paragraph of the bold. Um, actually, right a line before the paragraph of the bold, many outside, look at the end of that line, many outside nations too were joining them through eagerness for gain and the whole earth, one might almost say, was being stirred up over the matter. This really shocked the Roman Empire again at its height. This is the height of Rome, the undefeatable Rome, at, at its height to its core. Then indeed, Hadrian sent against him his best generals. First of them was Julius Severus, who was dispatched from Britain, where he was governor against the Jews. Severus did not venture to attack his opponents in the open at any one point, in view of their numbers and their desperation, but by intercepting small groups, thanks to the number of his soldiers and his under-officers. By depriving them of food and shutting them up, he was able, rather slowly to be sure, with comparatively little danger, to cross, exhaust, and exterminate them. Very few of them, in fact, survived. Fifty of their most important outposts and 985 of their most famous villages were razed to the ground. 580,000 men were slain in the various raids and battles. And the number of those that perished by famine, disease, and fire was past finding out. Skip to the bold. Many Romans, moreover, perished in this war. Therefore, Hadrian writing to the Senate did not employ the opening phrase commonly affected by the emperors, if you and your children are in health, it is well. I and the leaders are in health. Diocasi then says that we are not well. They had suffered. Just to end tonight, Hadrian, after the fall of Bar Kokhba, pretty much had the greatest final solution for the Jews, which would reverberate to our very day. Till Hitler, the great final solution, and the, the result of what he did would be reverberate till today. First of all, he banned Torah study. He banned Torah study and killed any sage who was involved in it. It would be Akiva, would be killed a year later around Yom Kippur for teaching Torah. He, most historians say he was killed in Kisaria in the Forum. They actually killed him publicly. Right, in the forum in Kisario. Teaching Torah was completely banned because they viewed that no longer would it be Yavin and sages. The Sanhedrin would constantly have to be moving around trying to avoid the Romans because Torah study became banned. He banned the name Jerusalem. Not only did he ban the name Jerusalem, he changed its name permanently from, uh, to Ayala Kapitolonia to cut any Jewish connection. He took the Temple Mount and chopped off 1,000 feet on the Temple Mount. If you go to Yushalayim today, the Temple Mount is lower than the hills surrounding it. Tacitus, Diocasus, everyone says that it is originally higher. It's clear from Judaism it was higher. He literally chopped off a thousand feet. He had tens of thousands of slaves chop off a thousand feet 
of the temple. Now, he actually made it into a Roman city. The Cardo. You walk in the Cardo. That is from Hadrian. Hadrian built the Cardo. That is there to this day. Not only did Hadrian forbid the name Jerusalem, he banned all Jews from living in Jerusalem. Jerusalem became the first city that was Udenine. There were no Jews. The only day where Jews were, from the surrounding areas were allowed to go to Jerusalem was Tishabov. And that's why it became the wall which had survived through miracles became the Wailing Wall. Because not that necessarily they wailed, but the only time for many years they were able to go was Tishabov, <laughs> the Wailing Wall. This pogroms would go for ten years. Pagan sac- sanctuaries were put in Jerusalem. The uh, the temple, this is what this, the historian said the temple to Jerusalem was erected on the site of Jewish temple. Hadrian's statue was placed in the, in, in the area of the Holy of Holies. The goddess Aphrodite, Aphrodite received a new home on the palace where the section, where the Christians were, were, where the church was. Um, the Romans erected a marble statue of a pig in Jerusalem, which was the symbol of the Titus's 10th legion but it was also to spite the Jews because they knew the Jews hated pigs. And for years, Jerusalem would be barren and this would be, no longer would the Jewish presence be strong in Israel again. Not only that, but Hadrian would no, lo- would no longer change the name of Israel to Judea at the time, to Palestine. Named after the Philistines, he wanted to uproot any Jewish connection and claim to the land. And he called it Palestine. That name, Palestine, would go all the way until 1948. And from the time of Hadrian onwards, there would be no more Jewish army, no more great Jewish revolts, until 1915, when the Jewish legion under the British would fight at the Dardanelles, for the first time any semblance of a Jewish, independent Jewish legion or army would come again. The reality of the, the destruction of Bar Kokhba was the end of the serious Jewish presence in the Holy Land to a large extent and it was the beginning of the great diaspora which we find ourselves today next week we will pick up with the oral law and the rebuilding of the spiritual base of Jerusalem in response to these three great Jewish Roman battles thank you